Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. We're back. We're back. Still on schedule. Still monthly. Weekly now, in case you hadn't noticed, we have launched uh, a Brad and Johnny special every week where we talk about the uh, the ongoing issues in the industry and our video, which are often the same thing, that we have many issues with our videos um but yeah so we're back with our monthly upload uh rob is back in the hot seat and we've got a really interesting uh talk with somebody who you might not expect yeah so we're we're back to the usual rambly format um with the very very lovely and interesting chrissy nicholson um chrissy joins us from the east london trades Guild. guild, yes, yes I, I think you got it right. Got it, right. I got it wrong about um, four times. So that is a guild that looks after the interests and gives a voice to small independent businesses. And we are, of course, talking about independence with her. So the way that this differs from our um, the one we did with John West, the financial journalist, all about sellouts, is this is not about sellouts. This is not about why big is bad. This is about, well, no, it's about, about why big is bad. But it's also about why independence is good. And the practicalities of being independent, both the issues it has and the benefits it has for whatever industry you're talking about. So without further ado, we'll lead you on to Chrissy, um, talking about the importance of independence from the East London Trades Guild. Let's talk about Beer Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about Imperial Stouts and Ember Buyouts of Wicked Weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Welcome, Chrissy, to the Beer Merchants Tap in Hackney Wick. Um, you're joining us from the East End Trade Guild. Trades. Trades. You even had two shots uh, at two that. Two shots, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. No good at this. Um, so thanks for coming in. Pleasure. To chat about um, the trades um, and independence and everything that you, uh, you fight for. Do you want to give us a bit of an intro to, to what you do? Sure. So I'm the director of the East End Trades Guild, which is an alliance of over 300 small independent neighbourhood businesses working together in solidarity to take effective action on common interests. So is that looking at the world as being full of full of chains, full of, of people owning different businesses and saying, we need, even if we're going to be independent, we need a common voice to be heard above these bigger businesses that's exactly right yeah so in the days of old you would have had these gigantic beer companies i mean 
first of all, there would have been the little ones like you guys. And then, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, there would, would have become huge, great big companies with thousands of workers who may have had poor working conditions and the workers would have banded together and formed a union and then they would have uh, secured better working conditions. So the Guild really comes from that tradition, but it's working uh, at a in a way that's fit for the present day. So there are now more small independent businesses than there have been since pre-industrial times. Um, so the Royal Society of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce coined a phrase called the second age of small. And so the East End Trades Guild is a way of looking to the past and creating something that kind of draws on the best of those traditions, those community organising, union traditions, civil rights movement traditions, to create something that's going to kind of help keep that diversity um, for for local independent businesses, yes. And what are the, the issues that um, most of these companies are very concerned about and, and needing a voice for? Well, a couple of years ago, we did a listening campaign with our active members. So a bit like shop stewards, we have active guild reps who act as leaders and representatives for their local community of local businesses and they went out and listened to uh, other neighborhood businesses to their neighbors and the common theme that came back was high rents Uh, rents are going up so quickly so fast so high in one go that it's making it impossible for small independents to run their businesses to sustain themselves to pay their employees And it's actually hollowing out London, really, as we know it, because all of that rich value that you guys and your, you know, comrades, your your friends create in terms of, you know, just walking around Hackney Wick and kind of seeing the different activities in place and the the amount of people that you employ. Um, You know, we've got members, we've got a lot of brewers, well, some brewers who are members, Hackney Brewery, for example, they use green energy. Um, You know, other breweries will employ apprenticeships. Um, And they have that sense of local accountability that the big chains that can often pay the higher rents, they don't have that. They don't, they're not as tied to the local community as as a small guy. So it's really important that we do fight and we know from history that when people do come together and create that kind of people power that things can change. You know, we take for granted a lot of the things that we have now, like, you know, the working week, the right to vote, all those things, they weren't in place before people organised together. Um, So it doesn't have to be the way things are you know high rents there there's there's another way and by by coming together we can we can find out what that other way is and who typically are you taking those issues to so that's a really good question because it's actually a really big issue and i say that we can change things but it's not going to be easy and you do need to organize a lot of people power um and we have had some success so in 2000 and 18, we put together our affordable workspace manifesto, having heard what was the most important thing to local businesses. And we put forward some solutions to two local mayors, the mayor of Hackney and the mayor of Tower Hamlets. And we did that in a really public way um, because we knew that that would put pressure on them 
to say yes. So we had our assembly at Genesis Cinema, which is another one of our founding members of the Guild. And um, <clears throat> we put our proposals to them. We packed out the cinema and we said, you know, if you get elected, will you commit to working with us on these solutions? And they said, yes, of course. And then it doesn't stop there because what they say in public just before an election needs to be, you know, they need to be held to account. So we had loads more meetings. And then a year later, really to hold their feet to the fire, we had another big event at Clapton Girls Academy where we got them in front of like 200 of our members. And we were like, well, what did you do? Did you do it? (laughs) And so they really felt that pressure and that actually delivered funding for a new uh, web-based app that we've created called RentCheck. So one of our solutions was to create a register of comparable evidence for people. So you probably know that if you've got a rent review and your landlord says you've got to pay this much because this is the market in inverted commas rate... Um, you might just say, oh, okay, you might not know that you can argue that down. But if you say yes and it's a very high level, very high comparable, then you're kind of screwing over your neighbours because then that becomes a comparable. It's self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Saying, oh, the market's this already. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then that will be used against all of your neighbours when they come to their rent review. But what we found with our members, and and this is very true of Guardians of the Arches in particular, um, but you know, for a lot of members is that when you share information at street level, um, information is power and it it enables people to uh, negotiate their rents lower than they would otherwise if they they kind of kept everything secret and kind of just acted on their own. And so rent check is a way of people being able to share that information in a quick and efficient way. Um, We're actually launching it for a members-only event on the 4th of March at Newspeak House, which is on Bethnal Green Road, um, and yeah, that cost the first kind of cycle of development to make that cost 12 grand. And we managed to get that funding through those events that I spoke about through organizing together. So all of that information that we're collecting with our members is out there, but it's mostly held by the agents of the property market and they're all exploiting it to make money for themselves. So we're trying to level the playing field really. This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. So where did, um, we should learn a little bit about you, I guess, to see why, why you set up this guild and, and were so passionate about independent businesses. So where did that come from? Well, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a fraud, I guess, because <laughs> I don't have my own independent business. And, um, but I, I was studying for a master's degree in community organising 
and I got really passionate about community organising because I'd been quite isolated as as a single parent in London and I'd really struggled with housing and paying the rent as a single parent with one income um, covering the costs for two people and was quite isolated and then I was really stuck in my career as well I wasn't really able to earn enough I didn't have um, any proper training I'd just done lots of fun things like singing in bands and <laughs> and uh, but you know it turns out that's not very sustainable we've, we've all been there <laughs> yeah we've all tried <laughs> and so yeah I was thinking about maybe becoming a teacher and I was looking at university degrees to do and I just found myself on a community organising training a two day introduction to community organising with an organisation called Citizens UK which is the home of community organising um, in this country. And its sister organisation, we're giving you probably a bit too much background, but its sister organisation in the US is the Industrial Areas Foundation. And that's where Barack Obama trained as a community organiser. So it's, as I mentioned earlier, community organising has its roots in, in union organising and in the civil rights movement, and it's really kind of sprung from that. And at this training, there was an imam from a mosque. There were young people from a comprehensive school. There was an elder from Nigeria. There was just every kind of different person. And they were all in the same room. And they were all telling their story. And they were all talking about triumph and adversity. And I can tell you, I've never felt so inspired. Um, Prior to that, I was a receptionist. Um, picking up the phone all day, you know, feeling like Dolly Parton and nine to five. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, you know, hearing these people communicate the way that they were was just galvanizing. And part of the training was to go out and take action. So me and Victoria, who is this old lady from Nigeria, we, we worked in a team and we went into big brand um, businesses on Oxford Street and we were uh, asking to speak to the manager of the store saying, you know, can you give this letter to your uh, MD because we think it's really important that you pay your staff a wage of dignity. You know, we think you should be paying your staff the the London living wage effectively. Um, And so, yeah, I just... When was this? Um, So I started my degree in 2010, so it must have been 2009. So I did my degree very quickly after that training. I was like, that's it. I know what I want to do now. I found it. Um, So, yeah, I volunteered on the Living Wage um, for a bit with Citizens UK. When was the London Living Wage introduced? Not that recently. It's kind of been going for a long time. And and that was brought about through community organising as well. So the the London Living Wage is over 10 years old in terms of um, it being kind of fought for on the ground through communities in East London, taking on the banks, first of all. Um, But the London Living Wage Foundation is relatively new. So that was the thing that was set up later to make sure that, you know, it could continue in perpetuity as a... As a real thing yeah because it's nice that it is like a badge of honor now and people shout about it and rightly so um because it's in the well the pub game more probably than the the brewing game it is minimum wage and was a minimum wage job for such a long time for part-time staff and 
um, more and more places are are pushing it and you know there's stickers on doors and things like that and it's nice it's nice to support that and you know I've been on the other end of getting paid seven quid an hour living in London and it is tough and you need to work a lot of hours in a week to sort of make ends meet so um, those sort of campaigns make such a big difference for for well young and old people I suppose. Yeah, I think it makes a difference to the people that are being paid, but it also makes a really big difference to the people that are pushing for the change. It can be quite transformative if you're on not earning anything or you're struggling with something and then you take that issue on collectively with other people and, then you, and you get somewhere. You know, it's quite, yeah. it's quite exciting. You've got a voice. Yeah. So you, you were, I guess, slightly ironically volunteering for something that was campaigning for the living wage. Yeah. How how were you managing to fund that? Because you you went into training to get a better job so that yeah. you, could, you could pay your way, and then suddenly you're volunteering. Yeah. How did you see your life panning out? Did did you plan a guild thinking that's how I can a earn a living and b make all these big changes? Um, yeah. Well, when I start started the guild, I was hopeful that I could make some money from it. You know. Kind of, not, I wasn't expecting to be a millionaire, no. but I was hoping that I could do something meaningful and earn enough money to get by and eventually, hopefully, become comfortable. <laughs> You'll sell it for millions one day. And be like, yeah. yeah, it was all. It was all a lie. Take it off me, Coca-Cola. <laughs> um, yeah, so sorry, how, how, did the, how did the guild start from, from, <clears throat> from there, I guess, is the question. So the, the, it started with a blog called Spitterfield's Life, which everybody should go and look up. Just Google Spitterfield's Life. It'll be the first thing that pops up in the search engine. Um, it started, Spitterfield's Life started around the same time that I started my master's degree. And I was really entranced by it. It was just a very authentic storytelling blog so it was somebody going out and meeting locals and talking to yeah, them yeah exactly he he's called the gentle author and he's a spitterfield resident and every day he goes out and he meets somebody and he takes down their story and he writes about it and he's a, he has a just a great way of writing it's very straightforward um there's no pretense around it um, but he has a great skill with narrative. And narrative is one of the things that we talk about in community organising a lot. You know, it's, how, it's the thing that kind of helps bring change around. And so I was just really interested in this blog for lots of different reasons. And he was obviously really well connected because, you know, he, he made, he's, he's made this commitment to, to write every day for... I don't know, until, I can't remember, something like 40 years or something. It's, it's a huge labour of love that he's undertaken. And he's now become a book publisher as well. But anyway, the story was about Gardener's Bags, uh, which is a fourth-generation paper bag seller which used to serve Spitterfield's Market when it was a fruit and veg market. And the proprietor is a gentleman called Paul Gardner, who is a local legend and is universally adored basically because he's just wonderful and lovely and very funny and will talk to you for a very very long time <laughs> and um, the landlord wanted to put up his rent a lot in one go which would have put him out of business but because a dental author wrote about him 
and because of his skill with narrative local people were just up in arms and there was this huge outburst this outcry of like how could this happen this is living heritage this is the east end this is the essence of the east end how can we lose this and the landlord who was also local just couldn't be bothered with it he was like oh whatever so the rent still went up but he put it up at a more manageable amount so it didn't solve the problem long term but it enabled him to stay put for longer and which was which was fantastic because Paul has been a very active member of the guild he was really active on our business rates campaign and um, was invited to 10 Downing Street and delivered our petition our 11,000 strong petition to 10 Downing Street as well um, so it, it was great that he was uh, he was allowed to stay. Unfortunately, he has now finally gone. The business hasn't closed. It still operates from Rockholt Road in Leighton now. And the good news is is that it's the business, the premises is owned by his family, so he doesn't have to pay any rent. Hmm. But you know, if he'd been forced to pay that rent or to move out suddenly, which would have happened with a rent review, that could have been catastrophic. Whereas get, having the extra years and planning his move and getting ownership of the place yes, changed everything. It did, and it was really the catalyst for the Guild because I was really inspired by what I'd read and I went to meet Paul in person and he is just this wonderful human being and he introduced me to lots of other little businesses in the area and they're all having exactly the same issue and so it was really the that facilitation of people coming together that's the that's the organizer's role really is to help people come together around their common issues to take action and so that's what I did I was just kind of practicing some of the things that I've been learning about on my degree we had lots of meetings and then eventually they decided that they wanted to announce themselves as the East End Trades Guild at a launch assembly so we did that at Christchurch it was a magnificent event we had a brass fanfare to announce the beginning of the guild and um, yeah and we had a few quick wins after that but going back to your earlier question about kind of how did you make that pay (laughs) (laughs) I did have to take a bit of a um, a little bit of a break and go and work for uh, as a community organiser for Migrants Organise which is a migrant and refugee organisation in West London for a bit just to you know and some money. Mm. But so, very much yeah. within the, the philosophical sort of parameters you'd set yourself. Yeah. A worthy yeah. cause by, yeah. by all yeah. means. Yeah. But then when my contract had finished, Paul rang me up. I was just like, can you come back? Can you come back? So, yeah, when my contract had finished, um, I came back and um, wrote a business plan. had no idea what I was doing, but, you know, wrote this pointless business plan <laughs> uh, and did a crowdfunding campaign to build up the membership and to cover my salary for the first year and that was in 2016 we've gone from strength to strength ever since then really um it's been quite an epic journey you said at the beginning that independent businesses sort of growing very very quickly um i suppose two questions is that is that 
across the board or is that in specific areas of UK? Um, and secondly, why? Um, well, London has the highest density of, of, of businesses anywhere. Um, why is it happening? I mean, different people will give you different answers to that. My hunch is... It might just be breweries, because so many breweries <laughs> have opened up in the last <laughs> five years. Yeah, but it's also self-employed people, yeah, yeah. so it kind of counts all, like, every kind of industry and sector. Um, and, you know, it's people, like, working on their own in their houses, like me, you know. And me, yeah. Yeah, so it's all of those people, and technology is is one of the one of the reasons for that it's it's just much easier to kind of work for yourself now as you know (laughs) (laughs) easier Uh, and harder (laughs) easier and harder but then there's also the argument around austerity there aren't very many jobs anymore you know the the face of of work is changing the landscape is just not the same anymore for a lot of different reasons one of which would be sort of the, the the macro companies and the change that we're talking about where efficiency, you know, capitalism always ends up with efficiency being the final thing you start to really home in on and try to um, claw back margin on. And that must mean that, you know, we've got automation, like in the Industrial Revolution, got automation happening, which is taking away job after job after job, which means that quite often the creative and the, the solo industries are what's left to you. That's not why I run a podcast, but I'd imagine that's why uh, other people have turned to things like that. Yeah, um, I think definitely. And there's there's lots of research being done around what what are people going to do, you know, when when those jobs just simply aren't there anymore. And I, I you know, I think there'll always be these creative, purist, craft type businesses that will always want to excel at their craft and do better and better. And I don't think those sorts of businesses will be part of that. But, you know, the universal basic income is being argued for as a response to this thing around, you know, automating. Did I say that right? Automation. Automation. It's not a good sign that we can't even pronounce it. Yeast infection, shin 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 so during the recent uh, general elections, uh, part of Labour's policy, and the, I think it has been with the Greens for a long time, has been around, yeah, universal basic income, which if you don't know is everybody getting paid a certain amount. So um, the idea being it would take some stress off the welfare state, off, off of that kind of thing, and it would mean that everybody earned a wage they could live off whether they worked or not. Um, do, you, do you see that as A, being a, uh, an important thing that's got to happen and B, being workable? Yes, and yes. It's, it's usually always, always about political will. 
Um, but there's some very good arguments for it. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I don't know enough about it, but they've done it in other places and it, and it, and it works. And it's about, you know, really shaking off the old model of capitalism because it really pulls into question what is work and what it, what is production and what are all of these things for and how do people lead meaningful autonomous lives doing something worthwhile you know we don't have to be slaves to capitalism to, to capitalism in order to function as a human being um and you know there's lots of arguments around well if you just give people a wage for doing nothing then they'll just sit on their sofa and smoke fags all day and watch daytime tv and do nothing but I don't think people can do that for that long, you know. I think people get bored after a while. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I was leading up to the point that if that did happen, surely it would probably mean a huge increase again in, in small businesses doing exactly what they want to do and not having that bizarre financial pressure that means, you know, we take, we take growth as the sign of the health of a business and it really doesn't have to be, um, unless you're growing something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're a farmer and there's no growth then that's an issue but yeah there's this sort of mindset that growth has to happen and some people have managed to work themselves out of that um and i think that's incredibly healthy and maybe that's why that there's been this boom in small businesses who have managed to find a way i don't quite know how they've managed it yeah i mean a lot of people are just forced into finding a way as well i mean i feel a little bit like that i i feel like i kind of been forced into finding a way because there wasn't really anything there that was going to pay enough anyway and so why sit there picking up the phone for somebody else why be an administrative agent of the market when I could be doing something more useful um but around what you were saying around growth I think that's really interesting because actually growth is a big problem you know, everybody cares about the environment now, you know, and growth is a part of that problem. And so, and, and, and I think what's great about independence is their scale. Most of them are small. Most of them would probably be under 50 employees, which would be, um, you know, deemed as a small business and in, in how it's currently kind of categorized a micro business would be up to 10 employees most of our members are micro businesses and i think that enables that sense of accountability that i was talking about earlier like p- people know each other they know each other in the company they're accountable to each other they're accountable to their neighbors they're accountable to their community because they're in relationship with them whereas if you have these great big mammoth corporate global corporations where they have thousands of employees, like who cares about, you know, the bloke in the office next door, you don't know his name, you know. Um, and I think that that relates to Dunbar's number, which we were talking about kind of off air. Like Dunbar is this, I don't know if he went to Ox, Oxford or Cambridge, some, some professor he anyway. Smart. He was, he was a smart, smart guy, yeah, he's a smart, smart guy. <laughs> and he says that you can't relate to more than 200 people. And so I think that's really interesting when you think about that in terms of business and business scale and how that business conducts and what that business values are about. Well, sorry, what does he, when he's talking about relate, 
What, you just don't know. You can't have a real relationship with any with more than 200 people. So it's the, the Dunbar's number is somewhere between 100 and 200. Um, so so again, it's how many people you can sort of sustain a relationship with, interact with, understand, like empathise with. And, is right. that yeah. on both a professional and social level? Or? So I think he's... He's talking about social networks, but I I think you can apply it to your business as well. I think I think the bigger a business is, the the more you lose the values around um, how you conduct your business, but also how you make things, why it matters, how you make things. You know, it all comes down for me. I guess because of my community organising background, which is all about relationships, everything comes down to relationships and about knowing people it definitely is the case as well i suppose when you look to sort of link it back to the the beer industry and breweries have sold out a lot over the last um, number of years if you look at america and even to belgium the last sort of 20 years they've seen the effects of the likes of InBev buying them out and uh the big thing that they noticed straight away is the quality changes um, and that is why a lot of Belgians look so negatively towards big beer we probably don't as much in the UK yet but we're in a very early stage I suppose of of a lot of big buyouts um, but yeah quality and relationships are the two obvious things that seem to go alarmingly quickly for a lot of these people um, do you think there's ways to manage it if you do sell out or do you think there's any big corporations that manage it well or if it's possible um i don't know is the honest answer i don't know maybe there are some people that do it well but i think the idea is you know let's just have lots of diversity like we like we used to let's just have a really rich diverse base of different kinds of businesses from different sectors you know rather than you know large bland soulless corporates you know I'd rather have lots of little people doing doing really interesting things distinctively and then all working together to make their lives a bit easier than a few boring big businesses Definitely. I mean, because the people that do those things are doing it because they're passionate about it and they love it and it then drives the quality, I suppose. But when your passion is making loads and loads of money, (laughs) (laughs) quality tends to dip, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, everybody should be able to make enough money. But, you know, at the moment, all of the money is going just to a very few people. Like, loads of it is just being siphoned off. Yeah, there's, a, there's a very few. Always that terrifying statistic that comes out every January, and, and the press report it where it's like a day. It's like the the seventeenth of January. Um, there's always a new story that says, right, the <laughs> the richest people in the world have already earned more. Like the richest one percent have already earned more than the rest put together will earn for the rest of the year. And it's like two weeks in, and you're like, damn, I need to. Well, what I think is I need to work harder and grow my podcast and YouTube channel, which is not the way I need to be thinking. Just be happy, Johnny. Just be happy. Yeah. Do it on the quality. Just wait for the universal basic wage. And, um, yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you had some campaigns around uh, business rates, mm-hmm. which is a huge uh, 
issue in the well, small business, all small businesses struggle with business rates. That's well known. Um, but within the beer industry, it's it's super tough, um, particularly around pubs and small brewers. So, what what was the the campaign that you had? And did you have any success, or did you have any stories of people who had? really struggled with it yeah we had loads of stories and we fed loads of stories to the press during our campaign so it was really a moment of whirlwind because what happened was is that there wasn't a revaluation so every few years the government has a evaluation of what business rates should be and because there was an election coming up one year David Cameron thought, yeah, we'll just leave that. I'm going to piss we're off just, a bunch of small independent just, people. Yeah, we yeah. won't bother with that this, uh, just now. And so it meant that when they did do the next um, revaluation, that there was a huge increase. And that was particularly bad in London, particularly bad in inner London near the city. So Hackney had the highest increase of business rates anywhere in the country. And so what we did is we just brought a bunch of our members together and we had a look at what all the other kind of business groups were doing and we put a petition together and we made sure it was in line with as many other business groups in London as possible. So we had the best chance of actually making a difference and giving voice kind of from across London to central government. And yeah, we we got our, our members together and just ask them, you know, what do you think is manageable in terms of the number of signatures we can get on this petition in the next two weeks before the autumn statement? Because we had to kind of make, drive home the point and make as much noise as we could before the autumn statement. And the figure that they decided was 10,000. And so we had about 80 people in, in the room and we calculated eat together like how many signatures each person would get and we kind of had a little map so they kind of mapped out their networks in terms of who their neighbors were who their suppliers customers and if you think about it as as businesses you know when you do this shit it's really fucking powerful excuse me but you know because you have a lot of people in relationship with you who are you relying on they rely on you in terms of your customers your suppliers and if you put all that together, that's a lot of people power. And so, yeah, we exercised that people power and we had a couple of weeks to, to get those signatures on that petition. And what, what were you asking for on the petition? Uh, we asked for a couple of business rates and we asked for business rates to be devolved to the Greater London Authority. So currently they're set nationally, is that? Well, or, or they're they were? actually, they were, but they are now being devolved and there is a pilot scheme where business rates are being pulled by the DLA and then redispersed out to the London boroughs. So it's, it worked. Um, but it was, it was a moment of whirlwind because it wasn't just us organising. The whole country was up in arms. I mean, there were you know, cities all over the country that were just holding up their hands saying, what is going on? This is ridiculous. And making a lot of noise about it. And so we gave voice um, from London to central government on those issues. And um, because we weren't acting in isolation, they, they listened and, and things changed. And uh, anybody who was coming out of the threshold for small business rate relief um, was then able to uh, continue um, making sure that they got 
their their reliefs so and and since then there's been more reliefs uh, pubs were granted support as well and um, there's now also retail business rates relief as well you mentioned that when Cameron put the everything through the um, rates in Hackney went up more than anywhere else in the country was that was that correct? Is that what you said? Yeah, so it's based... What You know, the problem that we have in this country with business rates is that it's set on a rentable value of an area. So when there's a revaluation, it's set on what the rentable value is. Yeah. So if the, properties, if the property value in that area is really high, then the valuation is going to be really high. But you also said at the beginning that mm. Hackney had the highest concentration of independent traders in the country. No, London does. London does. Yes. What boroughs? Is, is Hackney one They're of the boroughs? They're all really high. Okay. Well, I just the inner if London like boroughs. A, a, a parallel between the fact that the, the borough of Hackney had the highest interest rate and also had one of the highest independent business. No, the, they had the highest increase in, in valuation. Yeah. So it would probably be places like Mayfair that were actually the highest. Yeah. But in terms of how steep it went up, yeah. Hackney was the highest. So it, it had the highest increase in, in kind of one go. Um, and that, well, that was in terms of the property value for that mm-hmm. area. And that's why the, the rateable value was so high. And that could be because the independent businesses were making the area desirable. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. There's a bit of irony there that the independent business is driving um, yeah, house pricing. Success, yeah, yeah. yeah, cause, yeah. I mean, I live further east from here in Leytonstone and there's areas there that are becoming more desirable because of streets like Francis Road with more independent business that are very nice. House prices are going up because of it. And you, you do become a victim of your own success nearly, which is such a shame. And then eventually, then the bigger companies start to move in. Is it, is it a cylindrical thing you notice? Yeah, I mean, this is why it's really, really important that we take action on rents. And that's the work that we're doing now. This is the current stuff that we're really active on. And we're scaling what we did with the local elections, with the London election. So this year, we'll be electing the next mayor of London. And our intention is to compel the mayoral candidates to come to a London working rent assembly that we're organising and to put forward our really meticulously researched proposals around a London working rent. And that is essentially different ways in which different types of landlord can be responsible so they will value the social economic cultural you know the other types of value that your your kinds of businesses create as well as the economic value and they will count that when they think about how to kind of charge their their rents for at least a proportion of their stock and I think it's really historic and significant because our members have formed Guardians of the Arches, which is our sister organisation, which is a national organisation. And just a couple of weeks ago, tenants from Arches were sitting round the table with the people you were talking about earlier, the richest people in the world. Um, so Blackstone and Telereal Trillium 
are two of the largest investment, global investment firms in the world. They bought uh, transport, tra- they bought network rail arches from the government and our members and Guardians of the Arches members are now negotiating with them at the same table as their directors for affordable rent. That's, in my view, that's massive. So they're, they're representing thousands of businesses that are in these, these arches, yes. including hundreds of breweries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is very relevant because of the amount of breweries and that type of business that have moved into those arches, but as well the amount of old business in London that exists in those arches, like the old cabbies mechanics and that have exactly. been there forever. We have one guy who um, is co-director. So Lenny Jones is the director of Guardians of the Arches. She's a formidable woman. She's mother of three. She runs Guardians of the Arches and looks after her amazing three children who all have very special complex needs. And she's a real fighter. She's, she's incredible. Um, and her co-director, Len Maloney, is also a mechanic and, and it's actually in a TFL arch but he's provided apprenticeships to kids who just don't have any other opportunities there's just nothing else there for them and he does that because he had that opportunity he walked in one day to a guy who was fixing cars and that guy gave him an opportunity and you know the the value of that is huge and the state's not even paying for it do you know what I mean it doesn't cost the government anything but still they want to like put up the rent so high that these kinds of businesses can't stay. Again, it's becoming a victim of your own success nearly because more modern independent businesses moved in a lot in the last probably 10 years of breweries and cafes and stuff that have made it maybe seem trendy, um, whereas before it could have been just people viewed it as mechanics and quite industrial things. But you know, when it becomes trendy and people see it to be more desirable, then they just try and exploit it even yeah, more. Yeah, it's us bloody hipsters. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. But at the end Sat of the day... around, doing our podcast, <laughs> drinking craft beer. Yeah. Not understanding why rents are going up in arches. Yeah. <laughs> you just need to stop being so damn cool. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but do you notice that to, to sort of be... that They're trying to exploit something because they see it as desirable? Who's trying to... Uh, the landlords? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the problem that we have is that the property sector, it's, it, it exists to extract as much value as it can. Our, you know, that's its whole remit. It's a cultural issue. There isn't really a person behind it. It's not, there isn't really a human face, and that's part of the problem. And that's what we're trying to address by speaking to the people at the top with the power. So, you know, Sadiq Khan, the people at the top of Blackstone and Telewheel Trillium, and meeting with them face to face and talking to them as humans because it's the market, it's a property market that is, is the damage, you know. And it's the shareholders that those guys are going to have to report to going, well, we didn't make the yield we thought on this particular property because there's a really nice uh, brewery I like or a lovely cabbie guy or this guy did my MOT on the cheap because I've been in there 10 times. And that kind of stuff just doesn't wash when it's not a human face that you're that you're talking to or when it's a thousand investors who well, are sat there just looking at the number going. Yeah, it's numbers on spreadsheets yeah. then. Yeah. So my final question, uh, maybe a little bit cheeky on the face of it, but it's something that I think a lot of people wrestle with today, which is if you want to support independent businesses, you want to support um, artisan industries, 
can you still be going to these non-independent businesses and can you be supporting them? And do you do you frequent you know shops and chains that aren't independent businesses and do you struggle with that? Because I know that I do when I go to a supermarket and I'm like, ah, the butcher is only an extra five minute walk away. How do we manage that on a personal level? Like if I ever I do and I do occasionally from time to time, I am really paranoid. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to see someone. Gonna see I'm going to meet someone. Huh? I'm like, <laughs> they're going to catch me. Shit. I'm going to be in trouble. Um, I do my best. So I get my veg from Organically, which is a food co-op, and that's all grown locally. And I do view all of my decisions as political decisions, and I do worry about where I spend my money. And I do my best to, to be good to the environment and good to people and planet. But, you know... There's, of course, there's occasions when that's not going to be possible and, you know, you're going to have to dash into some chain uh, to get a light bulb or something, I don't know. And would you say that by by doing that, by recognising that's a political decision and, and desperately trying to support the independence wherever you can, has your life been enriched by that? Definitely, yeah. Um, and I hear this from members as well like members Juliet Tuke from Milagros on Columbia Road you know she she expresses it as just a, a huge amount of joy just walking around the different markets of East London and speaking to people and having those relationships with people and knowing people and uh, it's a fun thing you know you don't have fun in a supermarket you don't have fun in a mall it's more fun going and doing things independently because it's unexpected. It's the street. It's the essence of London, isn't it? Definitely. What is your feeling towards... I mean, we can only speak really from a brewery perspective of breweries that have sold out, but I'm sure other businesses you've dealt with have sold out in different capacities. What is your feeling towards them? Is it, you know they took the money fair enough or I mean you can't judge other people can you and people have their reasons for doing things I try not to be judgmental and just try and focus on what I'm doing and what I have control over and 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 where I can work together with other people who have the same values and interests that I do I you know you, you can't be judgmental and and hopefully, you know, there does seem to be a sea change where even the big businesses are thinking about their corporate and social responsibility in a more serious way because that's what the consumers want. Um, so all we can do is, is what we can do and use our own agency and, and, and power to influence things as best we can. Um, but I would say that if you're a small independent business and you're based in East London, then join the East End Trades Guild because the more power we have with the more small businesses on board, uh, you know, we can do anything together. We can really, we can, we can really change things. Oh, I love that stuff. Been drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I heard they recently decided to add more hops to it. You know, I, I heard they recently decided to add more hops to it.
So we allowed Chrissy a little pitch there, which I think she done. She's done incredible work in East London, and I really hope, I have no idea, hopefully there's lots of other people all over the, the country doing the same for independent businesses. Um, there were lots of really important things we talked about. Business rates with pubs and breweries is incredibly tough. I loved uh, her chatting about the arches, which is so relevant, especially for this podcast, because I don't know how many we've done in an archway. <laughs> With the goddamn trains the going trains above going us. Over. But like, that is um, such a big deal in London, um, and has been with originally a lot of independent breweries moved into arches because the rent was relatively cheap. The ceilings are very high, which is handy for obvious reasons. Yeah. And, uh, and then Blackstone come in, buy out the yeah. whole bloody thing, and suddenly the future of loads of breweries is, is in doubt, literally in doubt, and not just breweries. So many independent businesses across food, mechanics, all kinds of things. The other really interesting thing that I picked up on, and we kind of touched on it throughout, was this idea of, of, of growth. So this measure of business health um, in, in a capitalist society, which even the communist societies in the world are actually capitalist if we're honest in the way they run themselves this idea that you have to keep growing to be a healthy business and this is where i think craft beer has kind of fallen down and it's gone yeah we're craft we're small we're independent we're cool we're artisan we're passionate uh, but to keep growing we're going to have to sell to heineken or else we're not going to be able to survive and you know i think also you've lost it's, the narrative. it's just seen it, it, it growth is put in as an obvious measure of success so to succeed and to be showing that you're doing well, you're constantly growing. But in reality, you don't need to constantly grow because there's other factors that um, play into being a successful business. Um, if you're paying all your staff, if people yeah, are happy. Paying your staff well, making <laughs> delicious products, being sustainable. Yeah. So there's so much more than just growth. And I think mm. it is very easy to sort of look at a number and pin it on something so quite often growth but you know big business the problem is with big business they look at spreadsheets a lot they look at just yeah. numbers they take big the, growth it'll be margin it'll be they take the human element away from it because at the end of the day it's it's a very key indicator and it's an easy indicator but if you actually look at a bigger picture and if you look at like brands like the Colonel, I, I reference them quite a lot on this podcast because I have a lot of admiration for them. Because for me, they kind of threw the rule book out the window um, when they started the brewery with how they um, approach beer, changing it all the time. Um, never really brewing the same beer once. But then further down the line, when they kind of got to a size, they were happy with it and they didn't really grow, they didn't really shrink, and also sort of their attitudes towards staffing, like staff at Colonel kind of do everything. Yeah, they, they get moved around the department, so they learn everything. The turnover is super low as well. Like they've lost some people recently because pretty much all of them have gone on to found their own breweries. Yeah. Like that's the only reason people are leaving the Colonel. Um, it's an absolute model for, for the future of business. And I, I can hear people at home probably screaming like, you have to grow because rents grow, business rates grow, uh, inflation, all these things that mean that you have to keep growing. Um, and that's why I love what Chrissy's been doing because she's looked at that and she's gone, right, well, yeah, rents are growing. So how do we, how do we fight that? And she's got funding to track rents so that at the very least, rents aren't artificially inflated 
by slightly greedy landlords going, well, this is the market rate now. Now you can look at the app and go, no, it's not. Um, which is going to help people. You know, gro- growth has to happen. Business does, to some extent, have to improve, but it doesn't have to improve necessarily through growth. It might be, um, you know, th- Evan, I mean, his brewery now is, is probably over 10,000 hectoliters. So it's a big brewery in the scale of things, but he's, he's grown it organically and he's grown it slowly. And I would imagine that part of his growth has also been to be a bit more efficient. If you get a bigger fermenter and a bigger batch, you're immediately more efficient than you were. You don't have to produce more beer, you just have to produce more beer at once. And there's so many great ways um, to make your business work in what is still a capitalist uh, economy without having to look at the, the, the numbers and go, are they going up? Yeah, and it allows those type of breweries to say passionate and interested about what got them into that trade in the first place. And the more they grow, the more they'll have to look at numbers at the end of the day and manage bigger teams and things like that. And the less and less they'll concentrate on the quality of their output. Yep, yeah. And that shows with some breweries that have grown maybe too quickly and quality has dipped because scalability is a very difficult thing to achieve. And doing it consistently with the same amount of quality is nearly impossible. Certain industries lend themselves better to um, scalability. We know the cheese industry doesn't. Yeah, well, but we know that cheddar does. <laughs> so we know from our, from our podcast with Evan a, a good couple of months ago now. So Evan is a former cheesemonger. Um, and he was saying that, ch- that cheddar is the easiest thing to scale. So most of the cheese industry got left behind because you couldn't scale it, but cheddar got scaled, and that's why we've ended up with this mass of really shit cheddar in, in supermarkets. But now it's all returned back to people going, well, I, I don't just want cheddar or mild red Leicester and these pretty kind of waxy cheeses. Uh, I think there's something, from a personal point of view, there's something to be said for knowing your niche and making it work as well. So on the Craft Beer channel, uh, we have 75,000 subscribers. We... This month, we got about 95,000 views. Um, and we've, we've spent like the last six years trying to grow it, thinking um, we need more views to get more advertising revenue. And what we started to learn is that actually we're better off nailing our content, making the best content we can, focusing on our Patreon, which you can join, uh, patreon.com slash channel, um, or getting sponsored content from guys that love what we do and want to be part of that. And, and again, it just shows that even in, you know, I'm a small business owner myself, I don't need to grow to make money. I just need to do what I do better and that will produce profit as well. And it's super tempting for me to sit there and look at the analytics of this podcast, for example, and go, well, how, how can I make it bigger? How can I make more money? And we just need to make the podcast better, Rob. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> and the final point that I thought was really interesting from Chrissy was... The fact that she does go to these chain bigger stores and she feels guilty, and we all probably do. I believe hugely in independence, uh, in the in the power and the importance of a diverse, almost like anarchic industry where it's full of lots of different people doing lots of different things, um, and to not feel bad about the fact that occasionally we don't support those industries. We can't be perfect. Yeah, I mean, and we she- have to pick our battles. She pointed out there when I asked her about sort of people who sell out, who were independent and started this trend and then moved on and made a lot of money. And as she pointed out, 
it's not really her place to judge and it's not our place to judge because you don't know why people make these decisions and some of them it is surely for profit some will be because they can grow and they want to grow I mean these are business decisions at the end of the day but without knowing them it's not really our place to say mm. and provided we're happy with what they continue to do then and they treat their staff well and yeah and I mean that that's the other side of the independence debate there's lots of independent breweries that treat their employees like shit um, but lots of reports I've had from from like say Camden Brewery uh, I think people have been well looked after and, and well paid so we've all got to kind of choose the way that we want to live our lives and the decisions we want to make um, and not not always base them on independence but understand that independence is a hugely important part of any of the decisions we make and if we decide to have a can of hells because it's delicious that's great but whenever I do have that point I immediately A, feel the guilt and then kind of think well how am I going to support the independent businesses when I just gave a fiver to somebody else and that's okay like have the guilt have, have the beer have the guilt and then think right so next time I go past Caps and Taps which is where I buy my beer I'm going to buy a Don Zoka or I'm going to buy a Taras Bulba because you know he's, he's pissing off the authorities at the moment and that's fun um, so it was good to hear somebody as as um, involved in the scene as like reliant on the scene as well, like yeah. somebody who is lives by by independent businesses. To hear her go, yeah, sometimes we have to trip up, and you just have to make the decisions that feel right to you, and not judge anyone else for making different decisions. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, every week now, Brad and I are doing a little catch-up on what's happening called the Friday 5 p.m. podcast. Uh, we'd love to know your views on independence, uh, and you can tweet us uh, at Beer Channel, Instagram us at Craft Beer Channel, and find us, of course, on YouTube.com slash the Craft Beer Channel. We'll see you soon. the Sonic Drive-In, ordered a jalapeno burger, washed it down with beers, 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 beer, beer, beers, beer, 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 be